show fades in with white consecutive numbers bursting onto the dark entrance ramp. The electric guitar music is blaring, the crowd is cheering, and the 123 kid makes his way to the ring with Jim Ross enthusiastically telling us that coming up next, the WWF Championship is on the line. The date is July 11, 1994. The challenger has stepped through the ropes, and the look on his face represents not only where the character's mind is, but the performer as well. Sean Waltman has an intense look of concentration, the kind of look an 8th grader has before an end-of-the-year exam on the borderline of pass-fail, the look of a quarterback about to take the field for the state championship, an analyst about to enter the boardroom. Whatever frame of reference you want to use, Waltman looks like a performer about to step into a prominent stage in professional wrestling. We knew a couple weeks out. I remember like the TV before that because we would tape, you know, uh, one tape show, one live show. And so a couple weeks, it was at the previous set of TVs. I'm pretty sure it was Pat Patterson that came up to Brett and, you know, and told Brett we were having the match. So we had plenty of time to think about it. And, it was kind of a throwaway match in the sense that it's like even before they announced it for the commercial kind of thing, like coming up next, Bret Hart versus One Two Three Kid. You know, no one's really thinking about it, or it doesn't really make. You know, no one's gonna, no one's gonna miss it if they don't see it, kind of thing. They came to get us for the match like two or three different times, and um, two or three different times, Bret said we're not ready yet, and so they they shot our match out of sequence and. Um, you know, finally, obviously, eventually we were ready. It's just we were really putting a lot of thought into that. Once the match starts, you can start to tell this great story of an underdog, a young guy. He's got this chance of a lifetime to win the title on Monday Night Raw. He's a long shot. The title A never changes hands. But you know what? We're just going to give everyone that that belief that maybe, just maybe tonight, someone's going to pull it up. Then the lights go down, like a feature presentation about to start at the movie theater. Instead of the goosebumps-inducing 20th Century Fox fanfare, however, a familiar searing guitar riff tears through the arena. Well, you know, it's just an ex—it's a—it's an execution match. It's—it's it's one of those kind of matches where I believe it's one of those matches that has great psychology. And it's, it's a case of um, what I tried to do with throughout my career, but it was one of the best examples of sort of thinking about what would be the best storyline for, for this guy to wrestle against me. Like, I knew I was going to wrestle him. Like, I had a week to think about it, and they told me that I was wrestling the kid on Raw, and uh, they just wanted to do it uh, for whatever reasons. They, they picked him to have a match for me where he gets a title shot. And, uh... The WWF champion clad in his leather jacket and sporting his pink cellophane sunglasses, is cast upon by a spotlight as he walks through the curtain. Brett the Hitman Hart is at his peak. He is a wrestling god in 1994 as the cornerstone of WWF's new generation era. He struts to the ring with his usual purposeful glide, and yet still takes a couple of passes to each side of the aisle to slap hands with the fans. The fireworks explode in the arena as Jim Ross runs through the accolades of Bret Hart, 
recounting to everyone at home, be it a longtime wrestling fan or just a casual one, how legit a champion the Hitman is. And then through the darkness, Owen Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart approach the ring. It's been quite the calendar year for Bret Hart. In January, Owen turned his back on him at the Royal Rumble, setting up an epic WrestleMania encounter, which Bret shockingly lost, and yet later in the night defeated Yokozuna to recapture the WWF title. One of the craziest WrestleManias for any wrestler ever. Despite recapturing the title, however, the family feud with Owen continues, and only seem to intensify with two significant events. One, Owen won the King of the Ring in June, making his case to challenge for Bret's title even stronger. Two, at the same event, Bret battled rising star and intercontinental champion Diesel to a no contest that saw Jim Neidhart, his former tag team partner and brother-in-law, turn his back on him and side with Owen. As far as the last six months have gone, Bret Hart has been on a roller coaster. The appearance by Owen and Neidhart is merely a jaw-jacking session ended quickly by the presence of security, but their presence confirms that there is still business to take care of after this match, regardless of the result. Earl Hebner raises the belt above his head for all to see, and then the bell rings, with both Bret Hart and the kid shaking hands to start things off. They lock up, and the kid quickly arm drags the champ, which Brett sells for the camera that he wasn't expecting that kind of speed or agility. What a mess, it's the one, two, three kid just gave the hitman right there. He's saying, don't be thinking about Neidhart and Owen Hart. Yeah, and you can tell even just from, from the very beginning, the match starts right out, yeah. you give him an arm drag, and he's yeah. and even just his facial expressions, yeah. you know, he's, he's telling the whole story there. They tease a test of strength, but both are pensive about locking up. Brett, in a sneaky heel move, kicks the kid's hand to gain the advantage with an arm twist into an arm bar that the kid quickly reverses into one of his own. He doesn't have the size advantage, and yet he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best technical wrestler in the business who easily has a 50-pound weight advantage on him. And that is something that bears further mention. One of the underlying currents of WWF's new generation were wrestlers that were the antithesis of the stars of WWF's first golden age in the 80s. The biggest departure between then and the branding of new generation stars was the size difference. This era would come to be defined by the likes of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, who was also on rapid ascent at this point in time. The look and style of Bret and Shawn is a marked departure from the likes of Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. That's why it seemed improbable that a guy like Bret Hart would ever be WWF Champion. He didn't look like Hogan. He wasn't a jacked up physical specimen. That's why more times than not, even dating back to his days in the Hart Foundation, Bret frequently looked like the smallest wrestler in the ring at any given time. Even the classic Hart Foundation match saw Bret absorb nearly all the punishment early on, only later to summon the tidal wave of a hot tag in the form of the brawny Neidhart who would then suddenly clean house. Look at Bret's matches against Yokozuna at WrestleMania's 9 and 10. It looks totally different than when Hogan would match up against Bundy, Andre, or even Earthquake. All that is to say, Bret looks like Hogan, standing across the ring from the 1-2-3 kid, 
and it provides an interesting dynamic that Brett would rarely, if ever, see again. And yet when he powers out of the kid's armbar with a body slam, the kid immediately kips up for another go at it. Said the kid will take chances, a lot of risk. You know, they, they say that opportunity always involves some risk. Macho man, you can't steal second base with your foot on first. You're right about that, but I'm going to tell you something. The longer this match goes, I would have to give the edge to the hit man. Jim Ross notes that the chants from the crowd are for the 1-2-3 kid, but Macho Man Randy Savage, providing color commentary for this match, says that will change. It leans towards the way Brett works this match. It'd be one thing to play this like it is on the surface, a face-versus-face TV match, but Brett adds some nuance by working aggressive elbows, shoulder blocks, knees to the gut, and strikes that give off this interesting sheen of a heel but it's never enough to where the crowd will actually turn on him. And that's a credit to Brett's ability to listen to the audience and his high wrestling psychology acumen. It's a beautiful story. I mean, the, the story of two wrestlers telling the story the way we did and him selling the way he did. And uh, I can remember giving him some great elbow smashes and he would sell them so good and it looked like they, they caved his chest in every time I hit him. And you know, he got really aggressive with me in there for this sole purpose of making sure the people were behind me. He went actually went out on a limb and, and kind of turned heel just to get me over. Like People were always solidly behind me back then, but I've never been across the ring from Brett. Right, and that's what I was wondering. Where Kid really takes it to Brett is with his kicks, his bread and butter signature attack that separated him from the rest of the roster. At one point, Brett takes multiple thrust kicks from different positions that put him figuratively and literally on the ropes. You know, he did a great job of selling and getting a good ass whipping, and then uh, he did a great uh, comeback and uh, potatoed me about ten times with uh, back kicks and drop kicks. And he drop kicked me in the corner. It was like it was one of the stiffest drop kicks I ever got in my life. I did. I clocked him like two or three good times. He, mm. And he's not, when you hit Brett, when you potato Brett, he'll let you know. And he <laughs> let me know. Yeah, he said those were some of the biggest potatoes I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> hey, legal maneuver, right to the abdomen. I think the hitman's thinking right now, don't underestimate the one, two, three kid. Keep his mind off the rocket at Tim Brett quickly regains the advantage and delivers punishing European uppercuts in the corner that elicits boos from the crowd. Uh, the uppercut forearms, mm -hmm. the European style uppercut uh, forearms that are referred to um, as lifters. That's what we call them, lifters. Yeah. Um, and Brett was, Brett was like pretty much the best lifter of anyone that's mm -hmm. not from the UK, or he did. Right. Um, and, you know, Brett, if you watch the match when he hits me with those things, it looks like it looks like he's taking my head off. Like, he actually told me no one had ever sold those like that before, but it wasn't hard to sell them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can tell everything is definitely uh, there for sure. Yeah. Look at the kid trying to shake it off. And just kill you to the bone here. He works kid very snug and wrenches a reverse headlock. He grits his teeth with a certain combination of frustration and also enjoyment considering his brother and brother-in-law probably aren't far from his thoughts, and this match serves Brett's appetite to work aggressively. So then this match has a weird spot that I actually, I don't think it serves it particularly well. The WWF champion now in firm control. Picks the one, two, three, kid up to the center of the rope, far side. Oh, the kid trying to go for a crucifix, but the champion blocked it. He's 
Sting. His foot was definitely on the rope, and they're giving the victory to the Man, Fred Hart, it was a three count. The referee did not see it, but I'm sure... The one-two-three kid attempts a crucifix pin on Brett, but he doesn't get all of it and doesn't have the leverage. Brett falls back, activating a pin of his own, but Earl Hebner, out of position, seemingly always, counts a one, two, and three while the kid's foot is on the rope. Brett sees this immediately, and he protests to Hebner even as his arm is raised as the victor and his music plays. The end result is the match is restarted at Brett's request after a lot of deliberation, which is great, everyone wants to see more. This match just didn't need this. However, despite any of my own misgivings, the crowd does come to life for this. You didn't see this type of finish, non-finish, reversal executed this way very often. It serves Brett, the supreme babyface, giving the underdog challenger a fair shot. Maybe I'm the asshole then, I don't know. That's just one of those things that I think disrupts the flow of a match. But I'll counter myself again. The kid immediately goes for a roll-up that nearly makes Brett look like a fool that actually reactivates the baby working heel tactics Brett used before. One interpretation can be that Brett feels slightly betrayed, and go figure for Brett, by the fact that he would go to bat for a restart only to be rolled up from behind in a cheap way. You know, they say, I think what Max says, uh, Bret Hart can take you to paradise, or to this kid, he may be as cold as ice. And I think we're seeing that, uh, that cold as ice feel from the team. You know, I remember thinking, you know, if it had been me back in my early days, if they'd called me to, you know, where I was going to wrestle Harley Race or something, for example, I would have, I know that Harley would have done everything he could to, to give me the best match possible. And I tried to do the same thing for Kid that night. He was trying his hardest. He was on the, and he was on the cusp of maybe the greatest match of his career. And he totally got into the match and totally got into the storyline and followed every little lead. All the psychology just poured out. And it's a great match. It's one of those matches that if you're a young wrestler in a wrestling school or you're someone thinking of being a wrestler, that would be up there with a match to watch. That's how you want to have psychology. That's how you build a match. You can take your opponent and and make him more than uh, anyone anticipated. Sometimes you gotta, you know, change up your uh, your style a little bit and, and incorporate different things to make a match with Kid. It creates a rejuvenated aggressiveness from Brett and desperation from the Kid as he truly goes into kitchen sink mode for the rest of the match. Was it a situation where you where you guys kind of both came to the table with a lot of ideas? Oh or? yeah, no. I, he uh, he said, "I want you to do all your shit." Nice. Yeah, yeah, and and he let me do it all. With Brett going to his patented methodical work, Kid realizes that he has to quicken the pace, and he goes to the air with kicks, and vertical strikes. And when Brett says they're stiff, <laughs> they are. But in succession, build an incredible momentum that the crowd recognizes and buys into. In a row, he lands a moonsault, a jackknife powerbomb, what? And a top rope leg drop on Brett. Actually, any of that stuff, like, oh shit, 
And I dropped a fucking leg off the top. I mm. think I jackknife powerbombed them. I mean, yeah. I just... <laughs> yeah, and like I they were see... buying. They were buying. The crowd was buying all, all the near falls. I'm buying and sinker. Well, and especially, yeah, that's... It's a near fall, but now the champion is reeling. Jim Ross hits the higher register in his call, which is when you know it's gotten real. Not to mention the Macho Man's voice cracks, which you know that didn't happen much. With the wind at their back, Kid presses the attack. It's like playing one of the THQ games, take your pick, and a beginner catches you with your guard down and starts hitting a series of moves that begin to make you wonder if they might actually win. Kid goes to the top rope again and tries a flipping attack, but he overshoots. Dive to the floor though. He kind of barely caught me on it. it <laughs> fucked me up. Oh my god. I was Those like, are rough. <gasps> I could barely breathe outside for a few seconds. Kenny knows where he is right now. The kid now is gonna take another chance. Can you believe this kid? He may be going to the well too many times. He Ross is now losing it. He calls it a moonsault. It's just another flipping front attack but Brett dodges and goes for the sharpshooter, but Kid quickly gets to the ropes. With Brett back in control, the challenger seems doomed and yet takes a top rope suplex and turns it into a pinning combination that wows the crowd despite the two count. He takes another chance with a drop kick in the corner that misses. Brett makes him pay with that rough looking bulldog he used from time to time. But even Brett still has one more slip up left in his system. He goes to the top rope, which seems ill-conceived based on what the kid has thrown at him. He pays for the risk when he's tossed to the canvas. The kid then signals to the crowd. Does he have another high-risk move he can fire off? His success rate has been low, but when he's connected, it's brought a couple near falls. He ascends to the top rope and extends his feet for a missile dropkick. was very powerful, very dramatic. Uh, he did uh, drove out, came off the top the turnbuckle with a drop kick, and I caught his legs and put him in the sharpshooter, and he tapped out. It was very humbling. Nowhere to go. Kid has no way out other than to submit. Once again, the excellence of execution reigns supreme. Bret Hart retains his title. Immediately when the bell rings, Bret releases the hold and checks on the kid. You know, he tapped out like a little kid that was sort of cried at the end of it. And I, you know, I kind of helped him up and gave him a big hug and kind of congratulated him on a great match. And anyone watching that, it's it's all just great drama. That's why uh, it's a match worth... Uh, 
going back and watching or remembering. The arena erupts to applause and cheers. They cut to Ross and Savage, who are both standing and applauding with Savage saying, Jim Ross and Randy Savage just crushed it on commentary. Mm -hmm. That actually, that it made it made the match even you know better. I know when we finished that match on Raw with me and the One Two Three Kid, that Randy Savage was one of the first guys to come back and just be shaking my hand and tell me it was an awesome match and what that's what he loved it. He loved a good wrestling match, Randy Savage, and he was really excited about it. And uh, I. I've watched that match with other voice out, like, because obviously at one point Randy Savage was like... Kind of on the outs. Yeah, obviously. And so all anything with his voice on it, they VO'd. And so when they, when they released this match on something, I can't remember what it was, um, they had a voiceover with Gorilla Monsoon and Stan Lane. And it fucking sucked <laughs> I was so mad Stan Lane was making jokes and you know right. like you know we, here we are out there doing this match and all serious and oh, I was so fucking mad when I heard that oh I remember getting off the plane the very next day flying out of like wherever they, they filmed that and then we were flying out and we connected through and we met I remember I met Paul Orndorff and a bunch of the WCW guys and they could not stop talking about that match with the kid. They, they Paul, Paul Orndorff was like almost in tears talking about it, telling me it was the greatest match he's ever seen. And that's what the business is all about. Not enough people are wrestling like that anymore. And, you know, I just know at the time it was, everybody that did watch it was like, thought that we blew him away and that it was a, it was a excellent, uh, real kind of wrestling match that you don't see enough and again kind of goes back to even what uh, we talked about with josh you know about bringing real to wrestling and at the same time not killing anybody while you do it pro wrestling occasionally has beautiful moments that are sometimes about the performers rather than the characters there's a beautiful private moment between brett and kid where they're hugging and likely thanking one another for the match and brett congratulating kid on this incredible effort it's powerful you just don't see those moments often and usually when they happen, it's because they're earned. Kid goes to raise Brett's hand, but instead, Brett raises the kid's hand. The 1-2-3 kid might have lost the match on this night. But as we've often learned, pro wrestling isn't always about wins and losses, but more about the effort we see in a win, or more so in a loss. Um, well, just, I, that's, to me, if somebody asked me, what's your favorite match? What was your best match? Any of those questions involving, you know, the best match, like, that's it. That's the, that's the one I choose. And, and I've had a lot of great ones. I've, had, I've been in, you know, worked with Sean, Flair. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone, Scott. Sure. Different guy, and like the best guys of different styles, you know, I worked, well, speaking of styles, I worked with AJ. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so I don't know. That's just that, that's the one I always, you know, point to. Yeah, that was that's my greatest singles match. The kid showed a lot of heart on this night. Being able to hang with Bret Hart is not something everyone could do. Even though Bret might have been one of the absolute best at getting the best match out of everyone. I wish I would have had more match. That was what we did after. 
you know, the first time we ever, the first and only time we ever had a match, and that's what came of it. So I can't imagine if if we were ever able to, you know, go out there and really uh, get to know each other in the ring. Sure. What could have happened? So, uh, you know, it, I don't know. He was just, a, it was, it was, he's one of those guys um, that you just, I mean, he's a, the, the, the term ring general, you know, um, would have his, uh, in, in the dictionary, would have his picture up by the definition. Uh, well, you could just go out there and just listen to the guy and, you know, I don't know. The legacy of this match is a tricky one. I don't know if you were doing a draft of Bret Hart matches if this makes the top 10. That speaks to how deep the Hitman's catalog goes in regards to in-ring classics. It's not much of an argument, although one is possible that this is the best match Sean Waltman had with any of his characters throughout WWF and WCW. But it's also the kind of hidden gem that diehard fans know about and you hope casual fans find as they see more and more matches. You know, we, I, I could say that I knew after the match was over that, that we'd had greatness and it was a great match. And, you know, people throw around classic too often, but that was a classic match that you can dig around in your archives and try to find a match that compares to that and tells that kind of story with the same kind of drama that me and uh, Sean Waltman did. It's not easy to find. It's not easy to replicate. It's not easy to do. And it's a magic. Uh, it's magic, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's a gift. This was a weird era for the WWF. Raw was in its infancy as a show, and the Monday Night Wars had yet to begin. It would still take years before they would find their footing with what Monday Night Raw was, and what you could showcase on it, and what you could do with it. It's a match that's a little ahead of its time. Ironically, this type of match would find its life during the early years of Monday Nitro with WCW. Light heavyweights, or cruiserweights as they were labeled, dazzling the crowd with good crisp wrestling and awe-inspiring aerial and tactical prowess. So as it stood on this night, the 11th of July, 1994, one of the all-time greatest champions and most popular wrestlers of any era took on his younger complement, a smaller guy trying to make his mark in a business still trying to get beyond the stigmas of the past. The veteran brought out the best in him, and despite having to put him down, took him to the height he would never see again. This was the story of the 123 Kid versus Bret Hart, an installment in the Perfect 10 series from the New Blood Rising podcast. My name is William Rinkin, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at New Blood Pod and myself at William Rinkin83. Thank you for listening.